Hello, Internet. I'm Stephen Harowitz, the director of Campfire. You are listening to Campfire at Home. It's our way of bringing a live experience to you, whether that be listening and reflecting by yourself or experiencing it with friends. Each Campfire invites listeners into discussions about life and how we live it. Before we get too deep into Campfire at Home, what you're listening to, I want to share a few opportunities for you to get involved beyond our live show or this podcast. We offer public speaking and storytelling classes and coaching for individuals and training and workshops for organizations. If you or your organization are interested in becoming great public speakers and storytellers, visit campfire.com. That's C-M-P-F-R.com. Each campfire season poses a life question that is explored by our campfire fellows together with our audience. We're doing something a little new and having our class graduates share stories at a showcase event. They're not quite answering the exact question, but they're telling stories that relate to the main theme of the season. So let's go to the stage at KDHX to listen to the students' stories on responsibility. So James, dedicating his story to my partner, Mary, not my partner, your partner, Mary, (laughs) and all people working for justice, fighting for themselves and others. So please help me welcome James to the campfire. Six years ago, I joined the Organization for Black Struggle. I know, I'm white. (laughs) But OBS actually wants people of other races to join their organization because they understand the importance of having allies in taking on certain fights, Uh, a lesson I would learn. Now, at first, I didn't go to any of OBS's meetings, and I would tell myself, like, "Ah, I'm a white guy. I don't really want to intrude. But the truth is, is, like, I felt out of place, you know, and so I felt uncomfortable. Um, But I would go to some of their events, so they'd have, like, a documentary showing or something like that, and I'd show up. And when I was there, I would get to know the organizers and activists that were a part of the organization, and they would invite me to come to other things. And eventually, it started being like a little more uncomfortable to keep saying no than it was to say yes. And um, it turns out when you show up to stuff, you get asked to show up to more stuff. Uh, so eventually, I was doing quite a bit with them. Now, I was never central to the organization, but small stuff, you know, so helping clean up. You know, phone banking, door knocking, envelope stuffing, that kind of stuff. Fast forward a couple years, Mike Brown was shot in Ferguson. And protests were a daily occurrence, uh, both in Ferguson and then eventually in St. Louis City in the Shaw neighborhood. And the Organization for Black Struggle supported these protests and the protesters on the ground by having activists and organizers do whatever they could to... uh, you know, support movement work. So I would help out also. And I tried to always kind of keep a low profile, stay in the background. So I would show up when there was a march and, you know, I might not like put my hands up or shout or anything, but I would, I would march along with everyone else. Um, but because I knew these organizers and activists, I was on uh, a group text message. And one day, a, a, a text message comes through from one of the activists, and she says, we're planning an action. 
we need some white activists who have kept a low profile. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> like, that's me. <laughs> and I realized like my strategy of sitting in the back of the classroom and like not making eye contact like only works until they call you by name. Um, so my wife Mary and I, we text back, we're in, like not knowing what we were in for. Um, well, the activist explains to us uh, that the Veil Prophet Ball uh, had been delayed uh, because it was originally scheduled for the same night as uh, the grand jury decision was supposed to come out, and they wanted to avoid direct protests. Well, uh, the Veiled Prophet is a local organization in St. Louis that fancies itself a philanthropy organization, but it's essentially an organization of mostly elite white people, and it grew out of the KKK, and they have a few events they still do, like... Um, Fair St. Louis used to be called the VP Fair and like the VP Parade. And uh, they have a debutante ball called the VP Ball. And this activist wanted us to infiltrate the VP Ball. <laughs> and I thought just like going to OBS meetings made me uncomfortable. <laughs> um, our mission, though, was simple. We, we were just supposed to take pictures. Uh, there was a larger campaign being organized that was connecting uh, the elite white people of the city uh, with power and racism and the police and those kinds of things. So we were just supposed to try to get into this invitation-only event and snap some pictures. All right. The organizer rented a room in the same hotel where the VP ball was in. I wore my nicest clothes. I had a suit jacket on and pants. They did not match. Nice long tie. My wife is wearing uh, one of her nicest dresses. Um, she's got makeup on. She doesn't usually wear makeup. I remember uh, the hotel bathroom. And like you have no idea like how much I'm sweating, you know. And I'm combing my hair, not because I think like, Maybe I'll fit in better, but because I can't figure out what else to do with my hands. Uh, we get on the elevator to ride down to the floor where the ball is. And you know when you just know you don't fit in somewhere? Like that feeling? Uh, getting off the elevator was like that. And it, and it brought me back to this time in sixth grade. I had transferred from a public school to a private school. We had moved. Uh, in our first dress down day, I showed up in like my like kind of ratty shorts and a hand-me-down t-shirt from my uncle. And like all these private Catholic school kids are wearing like polos and Tommy Hilfiger and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, dress down. Okay. <laughs> so like <laughs> stepping off the elevator is like that, but like 10 times worse because uh, all of the men are wearing like very similar black tuxedos with white bow ties and cufflinks, and I do not own cufflinks. And like the women are all wearing like evening gowns and matching white gloves up to their elbow, and my wife is barehanded, right? So <laughs> we, we, we step off and we walk forward a little bit where the other people are moving forward, and there are 
two security guards checking people's invitations. Uh, we do not have invitations. So my wife Mary is kind of like, like leads me off to the side and we're like looking in her purse as if we're going to find some invitations. And um, we notice a room off to the side where people are standing in a line getting drinks. And we're like, great, stall tactic. And so we walk off to that room and we get in that line. And uh, we have a conversation with each other that's something kind of along the line of like, what the fuck are we doing here? I don't know, what the fuck are we doing here? <laughs> and I asked myself like, what am I doing here? Um, and I remembered like in my, in my college years, in my early 20s, I had a pretty diverse friend group. But after leaving St. Louis and then coming back after being here for a couple years, I looked around and I had this very homogenous social life. Like, sure, some of my friends were queer and some were straight and some were more working class and some were more middle class, but all of my friends were in their mid-20s and white, like me. And I felt ashamed by that. Like, that without wanting that, that's how my life had ended up. And then I felt a little resentful also that it was going to be my job to have to do something about it. Like, I was like, I didn't create segregation. Like, why do I have to do anything extra about it, you know? But I knew that if our society was going to kind of push white people to only be close with other white people, like, I was going to have to push back somehow. So I went to this anti-racism workshop because I was like, well, this will teach me some things, right? And I remember something the facilitator said, which she was like, you know, more important than just trying to like desegregate your social life, you need to join an organization led by people of color, back their leadership, support the work they want done, figure out how to be accountable to them. So here I am standing in line at this VP ball being like, is this what accountability looks like? <laughs> like <laughs> we get to the front of the line, we don't drink alcohol, so we like get our waters, and which doesn't really help cool the nerves at all. And Mary looks at me, and I notice that the security guards have stepped off, and they're talking to someone else. And she gives me that look like, are we doing this? And I'm like, shit, yeah, we're doing this. And then we just walk into the VP ball. <laughs> now, we must have stood out like two sore thumbs, right? But no one says anything to us, because... Like, rich white people, they don't really like conflict. It's like a faux pas. And, like, we're white also, so, like, they don't really want to, like, confront us. And so we're walking around pretending to look at our phones a lot and, like, snapping pictures of random people, like, not really knowing why we're there exactly. And eventually, we're all ushered into the main room where there's a raised stage, and, um, and there's these, like, men sitting on it wearing these big pointy hats and their faces are covered and you're like, oh, okay, it's like pretty direct, right? Um, <laughs> like the, 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 the debutantes are being walked out along the stage and like these like rich white men are accompanying them and so we're snapping pictures of all these people and uh, an usher comes up and is like, excuse me, sir, and I'm like, that's it, we're kicked out, we're caught. And he's just like, you can't take pictures here. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so then we keep taking pictures, but like more sneaky, you know, <laughs> like, like on the DL. And I'm starting to get uncomfortable, like more uncomfortable. 
and I think about it and I'm like, well, I was raised white. And like, I mean, I was raised in rural Missouri. I was raised in like the whitest like country town. So it's not being around like all these white people that's making me uncomfortable. And I'm realizing it's the dissonance, right? These people are all acting like so happy and like everything is fine. And I'm thinking about my friends that are like tear gassed in Ferguson and the tanks that are sitting on their streets. And so then I start getting angry. And then Chief Dotson walks out accompanying one of the debutantes. He is the guest of honor of the night. And I'm like, oh, this must be one of the reasons we're here. So we're snapping Chief Dotson's picture. And, and then my anger starts to really boil up. And I want to scream and interrupt this whole charade because I'm thinking of Mike Brown's body laying in the street for four and a half hours and they're all drinking their cocktails and being all like this, right? And, and we text the organizer and we're like, we're, we're going we're gonna to do a chant. We're going to scream, no justice, no peace, no racist ass police, you know? And she writes back, she's like, no. <laughs> no interrupting. Like, just take your pictures and, and get out of there. And we're like, okay. So we do. And the next day, the pictures are all over Twitter as people are trying to make these connections between the police and, you know, the elitism and that kind of stuff. But uh, within 24 hours, most of it's gone because there was a lot of news cycles going on at that time. Um, and I remember wondering, like, you know, did we accomplish anything? And I kind of think in a way, no. But, like, does it really matter? Like, I don't think so, right? It helped us build more connection and, like, trust with these organizers and activists in this organization we were in. Um, and... I think when I made the decision that I was going to try to like desegregate my own life, like I had no idea that it was going to lead to having to infiltrate like an elite white organization, you know, like, but I think that's a part of accountability is not necessarily knowing what you're going to be asked to do and like where it might take you. You know, I was just a white guy wanting to do the right thing and mostly stay comfortable and Looking back at that night, there was lots of moments when I could have chose comfort. You know, like we got off that elevator, we saw the security guards checking invitations. I could have been like, well, no invitations, deuces, you know, like and like turned around and walked out. But we didn't, you know, we didn't quit. And I think that's what matters. Like, do you believe black lives matter? You know, do you believe immigrants' children shouldn't be locked up? Do you believe Jews and trans people shouldn't be murdered? Right? And if you do, like, what do you do about it? Like, how do you do good ally work for these other communities and people that you care about and love? And I think when it gets hard and it gets uncomfortable, that's when a lot of times we want to take the easy way or quit. And so my message to you is don't quit, even when you are uncomfortable. Thank you. One more time for James. And that is a wrap. I'd like to thank all of the graduates of Intro to Storytelling for sharing stories on responsibility. Also, a big thank you to the Campfire team, our photographers and videographers. Also, a special thanks to KDHX Community Media for being our partners on this journey. We are always so honored to host Campfire Live in the stage at KDHX and for letting us record in KDHX Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 
If you want to learn more about Campfire and the work we do, you can visit campfire.com. That's C-M-P-F-R.com. And if you liked what you heard, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. It really does help out. Until next time.